It's the Stazapod number 289, if you can believe that. Closing in on 300 Stazapods. Uh, we got a ton of questions today. So many, in fact, I'm not even going to bother with a cutaway and an intro and things like that. We're going to get right to it, and we're going to start on the Patreon. Uh, sorry, I should say on the Discord, which you can access as being a member of our Patreon, which is at, obviously, patreon.com slash First question here is from Rusted Toys. Do you think consumers would be interested in eco-toys made out of non-plastic materials like recycled wood powder, molding, etc.? Or would the impermanence of biodegradable material create too much of a barrier to modern collectors by eliminating the investment story that we all tell ourselves while stockpiling plastic? Plastic breaks down too, of course. Um, So, and this is echoed by a couple people who are interested in Maybe uh, wooden robots, uh, you know, different types of materials. I would say that there's nothing to prevent those materials from being used now, right? There's no um, prohibition on Marvel or, uh, sorry, Hasbro or Mattel or anybody from utilizing uh, recycled plastic or the kind of wood compost you're talking about. Um, that can happen now. And the fact that it hasn't happened, I think, speaks to consumers' tastes, right? We sort of, we're trying to imagine little incremental changes that could be better for the future as, uh, you know, under the parameters of today. And I think that that's the wrong heuristic in which to view this problem. This is a big huge global problem that affects many things outside of our hobby. I think in all likelihood, um, you know, consumers have to sort of be into the feel of even recycled plastic. You know, I don't know how many people have been hands-on with any of those. Primarily, there's like a lot of preschool and toddler toys that utilize this, but it is a kind of grainy, almost soapy type of feeling to this recycled uh, composite material. And it is not the same textile sensation that you get from a traditional action figure. So I don't think that the the sort of demand or the consumer urge for these things exist, uh, even in a small way. I think that largely the, the biggest block of consumers, which are people I would argue were born from 1970 onward, uh, we have only collected plastic toys for the most part. Um, And I don't see that changing. What I do see happening is just more and more collectability and more of that chase moving to the digital realm. Um, And you can, it's probably pretty easy to imagine what those things look like. But uh, toys and action figures and the adult collector's market, these are all shrinking universes. I started in the industry at uh, one of the big contraction points, right? When I started, the the sort of initial thrust of McFarlane and all that he accomplished in Toy Fair magazine and all of the, the sort of shift of the speculator's hobby into action figures had started to diminish, and it never quite recovered. You know, think back to when McFarlane Toys first came on the scene when Playmates did the Wildcats line, when Toy Biz was firing on all cylinders, when X-Men number one was selling millions of copies, when Spawn number one came out, like 
that era was probably the biggest flashpoint in action figures and the sort of hobby as we know it. And it has been shrinking every year since. And some years are more dramatic than others. Sometimes the line actually goes up. Uh, you know, I think that the the boom of Funko Pops, love them or hate them, that has brought a lot of people into the collectibles realm. But I don't think we will ever again reach uh, the frenzy that was those years in the 90s. And so I think just generally, less people are going to collect action figures. Uh, the younger generations are going to be more and more fully ingrained in the digital realm. They're not going to seek out tactile, real-life experiences. And, you know, we will become an antiquated faction. We will be alienated from the general world. This is, uh, <laughs> this, I know this sounds terribly depressing, but I do think that that's the reality. Just plastic goods, whatever the ramifications of them are, uh, in our hobby specifically, it's just going to die out. Now, does that take uh, a couple decades? Does that take 50 years? Does that take 100 years? I can't say, but... Um, I think that, you know, we have already lived through the absolute peak of what action figures and toy collecting can be. Uh, it has been a, a slowly dying ecosystem since then. And, uh, you know, I don't see anything, any cataclysmic shift that would sort of put things back to the glory days. Either that or we just go back to poisonous lead figures. It's going to be one of those two. Moving on to the next question here from JT. Listening to some of the older pods, I was wondering, has the story Lesser Gods and Mortals been released? Um, I don't think so. I don't think publicly, no. Uh, Lesser Gods and Mortals was sort of a pre-Night of the Slice story that I worked on. Um, in some ways and in some forms, the story of the Corriger is the story of Lesser Gods and Mortals. But his full story, obviously, has not been revealed for Knights of the Slice. Uh, I, I don't know in what likelihood I will get back to Lesser Gods and Mortals, or even what shape I left it in. I don't think it was a complete story by any stretch, more of an outline. Um, but it does sort of exist out there, and there have been little nods to that very early, um, I guess, proto-story. Now, hopping back to our official Patreon question and answer thread, Eric Sorrells wants to know, any plans for more clear figures? Absolutely, uh, there will be more clear figures for the end of this year, and hopefully before the end of all time as we know it. Um, as of now, I have something very cool slated for one of the action figure, the, the Millennia Club figures. Um... But, you know, obviously those slots can kind of change as the year progresses. But I have something I think is, is actually the coolest clear figure we've ever done planned for that avenue. Uh, I do hope it works out that way. And that would be sort of one of the later in the year crates. But um, it's going to be exciting. So I'm looking forward to revealing that. Next up, a good question from Jonathan Ortiz. And the, uh, Ortiz, not Ortiz. Uh, unless I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, and this is going to touch on a couple different themes that come up quite a bit about managing your collection, selling your collection, things like that. Uh, have you ever sold slash traded something due to needing money, making space, moving, that you regretted then and had a hard time hunting or tracking down later? Um, 
No. I can honestly tell you no. Uh, I think we all perceive that fear, and that probably prevents us from doing a lot of thinning out of our collection, but uh, it hasn't happened for me. I've parted ways with some really rare stuff I'm likely never to see again. Um, Notably, I did have almost a near-complete set of Galaxy Rangers, uh, the, the heroes, mind you, not the villains, although I had one or two of the villains. And I needed to pay rent, and I sold them, and I think about them fondly. I go back and I look at pictures of them. If I came across some in the wild, I would probably pick them up again, but uh, I sleep well at night. And, I, I, you know, I really would encourage people to do as much thinning out as you can. This hobby can really be one that overwhelms you a lot of the time. And in truth, just buying stuff all the time is kind of an empty practice, especially when you are just stockpiling it and you're not enjoying it. So I'm a big proponent of constantly doing purges and giving away or selling or even making money to buy new toys. Like, you know, I think that's an important part of the hobby that we kind of overlook in this frenzy to just keep collecting things and completing things. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to Gabe Berrigan's question, because that does sort of play into this as well. Space, what is it and why do I not have enough of it to display all of my collections? So yeah, you know, this is another part of the uh, battle of toy collecting, is space and display and things like that. Um, I can tell you it doesn't matter how many unused rooms you have in your house or how many shelves you have. Uh, it's never enough, right? Because this that is the nature of this hobby. And I think that, again, the purging is really important here. Um, the just separate everything. I mean, I'm going through this right now in a, in a huge way. In fact, I've overtaken the uh, in-law suite and laid out all of my bins. I've pulled everything out and I'm going through every single bin and through every bin, Regardless of how much I like the stuff in there, I have to shed as much as I can from it. So, I've been making some hard decisions. I I opened up uh, this bin of Mezco 112 figures, and they gotta go. Like, they're beautifully made figures, they're very rare, I'm lucky that I have them, and they don't bring me any joy, they're not on display, they're never gonna be on display. So they gotta go. They have to go out into the ether and make somebody else happy. I've been obsessed lately with this uh, Lightyear line that's coming out based on Buzz Lightyear. It seems to have some like really interesting, really cool astronaut designs and ships and things like that. So I'm going pretty heavy into collecting that line, but I know I'm probably gonna be sick of it in a year's time. So what am I doing right now? Well, pulled out my Jurassic Park bin because I was crazy into Jurassic Park and the Mattel line last year and uh, went heavy on that and all that stuff is just sit in the bin and it hasn't appreciated in my mind any way, shape or form. So that's on the chopping block. You know, I think the, the sort of rotating out of these things is super important. The act of buying something or hunting something down, uh, that only exists for a few seconds when you receive it and when you open it, right? The the anticipation and the path getting to that collectible is almost the entire experience. So it's important to like 
not hold these things as sacred. Once it's lost its appeal for you, then make some money off of it or make somebody else's day or put it up in our Discord and trade it. You know, and, and that, I absolutely encourage people to do this with Knights of the Slice as well. Uh, got a very nice letter from one of our squires in good standing, and they were asking about some prices on figures they wanted to sell, and they were happy to say that they're putting all this money into a creative pursuit that they've always wanted to do. How fantastic is that? Like, that, I can't think of a better use for Knights of the Slice than something like that. Sit on these styles for a year, once they're very scarce in the secondary market, go make yourself some money on it. And take that money, go buy yourself a sketchbook, or, you know, fund the project you've been thinking of forever. These are, you know, these are, shouldn't be permanent objects in our collections or in our minds. Uh, with the exception of the stuff that you truly love that's always made you happy. But it can sometimes be hard to separate things into those categories. But I do think it's a incredibly useful sort of practice to do regularly. And on that note, Squires of the Slice should keep watch because I am going to be doing, I'm going to be making some moves with a lot of my collection sometime soon. That'll probably mean private offers on the Patreon for some of the higher end stuff, like the Mezco stuff. I'll just post those on Patreon and people can, uh, you know, contact me with what they'd like. Um, I also may might be setting up at a local flea market. I will post that when, when and if that happens. And then also, I part of the reason I'm sort of getting all this ready to go is because I do still have designs on doing a toy pizza con, hopefully in July, and hopefully we'll hear back from the venue soon. So a lot of I, I so much stuff. It's a lot of prep work, and I want to get things sort of aligned for, you know, a bunch of these events. So uh, if you're a patron, I definitely think stay tuned to the Patreon. I'm going to have some stuff that's pretty insane uh, going up for sale. Uh, if, you've, if you've seen any of the sort of warehouse cleanouts that I've done in the past, you know, like, uh, it's a good experience. <laughs> so just tune in. Next up, we got more Patreon questions. This one from the Nobby Wood, who, by the way, you all should be following on Patreon. Uh, let me click his name, and I'll tell you the exact address. Is Patreon.com/slash/the Nobby Wood Tower. So go and be a patron of him. Uh, he does fantastic work, and he does a lot of very cool RPG elements that you can use in your gaming. He asks. What video game do you think had the best manual art? For me, it was Metroid for the NES. It's janky, off-model illustrations. Had a huge impact on me. Um, I mean, that's definitely up there. There's so many good ones. And I think that the interesting part of manual art was that there was no real set style guide. So it was kind of the Wild West. Like, anything anything could go. Uh, you know, it, it really didn't matter how on-model you were for these characters that were being rendered. And in some cases... Uh, designers had to figure out what they were looking at, right? Because the pixels were not incredibly descriptive, and it was not clearly understood what all of these creatures and characters actually were. Um, another one that 
comes to mind, a bit of a later NES game, but one that I think is incredibly underrated, was Contra Force, where you would have four different operatives, and it was set in present day. It wasn't like a futuristic Contra game. And uh, that had some really cool art. It had, like, cool weapon illustrations. And I loved the uh, cover art as well. So that was, um, you know, one of those ones that, that really sticks out for me. I, I think also I really loved the... Uh, Darkman game by Ocean. I don't know if that had a manual or not, but I remember seeing some weird Darkman illustrations that I liked quite a bit. And I know that's a, a game that people hate, um, but I didn't even perceive it as a bad game when I was a kid. I, I just thought it was awesome. I loved it dearly. Next up from Matthew Paquette. 2021 was a year where we saw a number of collaborations between Toy Pizza and other toy makers. Do you have plans for future collaborations in 2022? Uh, well, definitely less, you know, I think just by virtue of not being able to go to designer con and go to the convention circuit has certainly impacted my ability to sort of meet people and talk and, you know, go over these things. Um, so there's definitely less going on this year, but I would say there is more important things going on. And a lot of this refers to the project moonshot, which is always being sort of kicked down the road, but is, uh, as far as I know, a tangible real project. And I hope that, you know, at some point soon, there'll be a, a interesting milestone where I can finally cue this up and show people what this big project is. And it does involve other people and it is, uh, well, the less I say, the better, but it's exciting. And it is where all of my collaboration energy has gone. Like, I am just trying to manifest this one near-impossible project. Uh, because, well, again, the less I say, the better. Next up, another question from JT. Loving the new tampo print on the action figure of the millennia. Hackerman Apis Vest. What all goes into deciding where and how to put a tampo on a figure? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I will probably share photos of this at some point. There's actually a very last-minute addition to the Hackerman Apis figure. I added an additional stripe because it wasn't quite communicating uh, the way I had hoped. Um, tampo prints I really use sparingly. And I have felt like tampos can be overused. They can be a bit gimmicky. And it does add, I think, a considerable amount to your unit cost. So when I use them, I tend to use them because they're super crucial to the idea I'm trying to communicate about somebody or something. Uh, Malarkey Jack, you know, a pretty standard Hackerman figure, but you put that little smeared smile over his face and it just becomes something a bit more dynamic. So I try to be very judicious about the application of tampo prints. Um, typically you're going to have to decide, or rather the factory is going to decide, can a piece of detail be a spray paint app or does it need to be a tampo print, which is like a stamp print for those who don't know. And there's a bunch of different factors that go into it, but with tampos you get a very nice, very crisp pattern and I think it's, you know, it's good for like high detail. Um, to tell you the truth, I don't know why I chose tampos for 
the Hackerman Apis. It just sort of felt like I wanted it to be very sharp of a pattern, and I didn't necessarily want um, a spray style to happen. So, um, you know, there's sort of different effects you can get from different processes, and for me, I wanted just a sort of smudgy, almost charcoal-like uh, streak on his vest. And I, I think it works. I think it's, you know, I, I would say most people have regarded that as their favorite hacker, man. It's definitely right out there for me. Uh, and I think it's just a, a super fun figure. Next up, Jeremy Price. Which well-known artist throughout history has inspired you the most? Um... I think probably Hergay, right, the creator of Tintin. Um, and I, I, I don't quite know why, but his sort of clean line style and my exposure to his comics very early and then the HBO show that was uh, animated that was on when I was a kid, these all just, they sort of, they, they gave me a very deep vibe. And I can't describe it other than that. But I I got what his art was saying and what it represented. And it, I don't think I ever drew the same after seeing Hergé's artwork. I, and still to this day, if I'm sketching in my sketchbook, I'm going to use very hard, uh, straight lines, very angular application, very clean line, with the same uh, Pentel pen that I used when I was a kid. Uh... Sorry, not Pentel, Papermate. Papermate Flare, medium. Um, so I think in trying to emulate his work, it, it sort of got processed through my brain into the work that I do still to this day, and, and that was super important. And also, um, I'm kind of turning the corner on being able to pull together Harley and Marley and their entire... Uh, you know, handwritten comic saga that I did in middle school and high school. Um, and that is absolutely like an influence from Herge, the, all of the art in that, even though it's pretty bad by many standards. But I think uh, I want to pull together Gavin's little zine art that he did and then have every Harley and Marley uh, hand-drawn comic from my childhood as this, this sort of, uh, you know, preceding that newer art and just have one nice collected volume that uh, tells the tale of those two assassins. Moving along, Mike Johnson, what is your most annoyingly uncomfortable injury you've ever sustained? I tore my meniscus earlier this week, so I'm off of work till the end of the month. It's driving me crazy not being able to do anything but sit. Um, that sounds very painful. I hope you have a speedy recovery. I have been relatively, touch wood, uh, you know, uh, safe from major injury in my life so far. So grateful for that. Uh, I've never broken a bone. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, staying inside is serving well, uh, but I will say I did suffer from sciatica. I still get it every now and then. It is a searing pain at the small of your back. It oftentimes shoots down your legs or up your spine. Uh, it is incredibly, incredibly painful when it happens. 
It is a type of nerve compression. Uh, it really sucks. Um, largely, my sciatica was directly related to how uh, sedentary I was being and also incredibly poor diet, which I think most people in their 20s sort of go through. Uh, and also, I slept on a futon bed for many years, um, like in my teenage years. That is very, very bad for sciatica. And then, and then sort of like moving out of my parents' house and then sleeping on fold-out couches and shit like that. Like, all a recipe for disaster. Um, I still get it every now and then, but largely, uh, it doesn't bother me in my adult life since I got my sort of diet sorted out. And while I'm not really living up to it at this moment, uh, integrating exercise and just being more active into my life, uh, that greatly helps... Uh, this, uh, you know, these symptoms. But uh, I hope your meniscus heals soon or um, whatever the process is. I don't know if it's limb grafting. Whatever you got to do, do it, and I, I hope you recover. Moving along to Brent Lawson. Diver question uh, discussed on Discord. Do you think we will see a two-pack astronaut slash cosmonaut diver pack, Mercury astronaut silver and Russian colors, or Spice Fleet astronauts, etc.? Um... I would say, you know, I think like the the primary premiere of Diver is going to be sort of for underwater type things, but these suits really do function as both interstellar and underwater. Um, so, you know, I don't have anything quite on the nose in that regard. Like there's nothing that bears the NASA logo or looks like a cosmonaut. Uh, I think with some of the material styles, it would be relatively easy to customize and put that together if people want to see that. Um, and really, like, I don't know what the future of Diver will bring, but I assume we can kind of, after this initial order, start getting into more esoteric things and maybe more space exploration and things like that. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. The clock is ticking on Diver, and I can't wait to place my order and get this baby stateside. Next up, Isaac Carmen, have you ever included LEDs and figures or considered it? Um, not for Knights of the... S well, sort of. <laughs> so I have worked with LEDs and action figures before for other companies, other clients. Um, the one that immediately jumps out at me is there was a really cool Dr. Wiley lab playset for Jazzwares that we did. It's largely made out of cardboard, but um, there's a sort of skull turret that he can go in, and it does have an LED. So I got to sort of learn a bit about LEDs and their applications with the factory when I was over there working on that project. And, um, you know, I, I don't think it's the right fit for Knights of the Slice because that adds so much cost to what is already a pretty expensive figure project. Um... In terms of, like, experimenting with lighting and things like that, you know, the use of glow sticks and the caster wand is one way that I kind of explore that idea of illumination. Uh, there was also a 3D printed chest for, um, with, like, a port on its back that you would insert the same size glow stick into. Uh, but for many reasons, I never sort of brought that to fruition. It was going to have to be a two-part ABS mold and just uh, any number of 
variables and complications built on top of that. So, you know, I think largely the reality of Knights of the Slice is as a four-inch PVC toy line. Um, although, you know, there are really great micro LED kits out there, and I have customized several Knights of the Slice uh, utilizing those, and they're very cheap to pick up, and you guys can sort of uh, have a lot of fun drilling holes and, and working on the wiring and things like that. But I don't think there'll necessarily be an official release like that. Next up from Dylan Wheelock. Is it Wheelock? Wheelock. Anyway, welcome, Dylan. Uh, I'm sure somebody has asked this, but will there ever be a Pizza Zord? Um, so in the first issue of the Knights of the Size comic book, there is actually a gigantic pizza-style mech. And that pizza-style mech is destroyed almost instantly within the comic uh, as my way of sort of lampooning all the Sentai and Tokusatsu programming that simply rely on calling in a big mech to solve all of their problems. So I specifically didn't want Knights of the Slice to have that crutch. And so it gets destroyed almost instantaneously. And then in the world of Knights of the Slice, which... just sort of tangentially is referenced, mechs are outlawed completely. There is like a global symposium, and they understand that armored vehicles piloted, uh, you know, with sort of munitions, bad recipe, and they are sort of globally outlawed. It's not to say they might not pop up in different circles, but uh, I purposely built the world of Nice to Slice to be one that, that can't rely on that trope and that has to sort of put the focus on the human characters and their very specific choices and actions that they take. I didn't want it to get farmed out to technology because ultimately why would you, why would you ever go into battle without calling in your sword? You, you would just permanently do that. In fact, you would send it out with AI to, to do the dirty work for you. Next up, we've got a question from Matt Connolly and also got a side question from our good friend Lance Tomimoto. Everyone wants to know about the Cerulean Hyper Knights. Uh, they did sell out, but I do have some news here. So Matt's question, will the Cerulean's be popping up in Sub-City Storyline or are they on another deployment? Uh, their deployment is yet, not yet known to me as it is probably not yet known to all of you. So uh, one... I think these figures are going to start showing up. Uh, probably by the time you're listening to this, you already got them. So their deployment is largely going to be up to the end consumer. And I look forward to seeing a lot of photos, a lot of army building, uh, some cool environments. That's the stuff I live for. Um, to get a little bit to Lance's question, which is about the availability of the Cerulean Hyper Knights in the future or their sellout status and things like that. Um, I have a experimental deluxe edition of the Cerulean's I'm trying to do. And I know this is vague, sorry. Um, I do not yet have all the components to finalize this beautiful deluxe edition. And my original intention was to lead with the deluxe version and then release the standard version so people didn't want to spend the extra money 
uh, but still wanted the figure, they could sort of do both at the same time. The components of the Deluxe Edition are delayed. I'm hoping to have resolution on that shortly. So I had to hold back some level of inventory to cover what I'll need to do these Mega Deluxe versions. Um, so more news on that as I have it. If I am able to pull together the Deluxe versions and, you know, let's say I have 100 Deluxes I can do and I get 50 pre-orders, then I'll put another 50 Sorellians up in the store just in their standard version. So I have more. There will be more available. It's a question for me as to what's going to be Deluxe versus Standard and, and things like that. Next up we have Max. Can you give us a brief update on your Elden Ring progress? Uh, I'm at the capital. I have just defeated Margot. And um, I am having a real hard time in the subterranean shunning area. It is, I, I think I'm underpowered for it. So uh, if anyone wants to drop their summon around there, and you're on PS4, I could definitely use the help. But very much enjoying it. I guess the next step is gonna be the mountaintop of giants. And I'm looking forward to sort of closing a lot of uh, quest lines and things like that. I know there's a lot of, you unlock a lot of stuff up there. So very much looking forward to that. And uh, it's a great game. I think it could be the best game ever made. Following that is Gavin Raider. I noticed that the recent action figure of the Millennial Brick and Green Viper Desert Rat kind of feel like a new take on Classic Knights. Any plans to complete the trio with a tealish Desert Rat? Uh, you know, I hadn't thought of that until this moment, but you are correct. They are sort of uh, subconscious homages to our original trio. Um, I think that the brick, lime, and teal color scheme and the the sort of just the eternal vibe of those three characters is always going to reiterate itself in Knights of the Slice, whether I know that it's happening or not. It is just simply, that is our core trio, and that's going to reverberate on through the story forever. Um, I also intend to do a lot more Desert Rat uh, color scheme, so I'm sure we will get something that is an appropriate shade that you guys could probably use to complete that trio. But, um, you know, I really, I think the Desert Rat V2 is, it's just such a strong figure. It works for so many different things. And I'm definitely going to, you know, I got more inventory coming of a lot of different styles. So if you like it, great. If you don't, I'm sorry. Next question from Ramses Wilson. Uh, are there any color slash material styles you're particularly fond of? I think Chaos Pink, with or without glitter, has to be an all-time favorite for me personally. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely have my go-tos. And Clear pink and clear pink with glitter is fantastic. It's a it's a wonderful color. I find it to be something you need a light touch with. You don't want to overdo it. You don't want to overproduce figures in that color um, because it's it's very special, right? It has a high perceived value. So you don't want to keep pressing that same button over and over again. I think my ultimate color for production is what I call Kenner blue. It is kind of a deep, warm navy color. Um, 
I just love this. It, it makes me think of the sort of Sears snaggletooth I had when I was a kid. Uh, and, and a lot of other Kenner figures are sort of utilize this, this color. A lot of the accessories also. If you can visualize that, you get a good idea of this color. Uh, but I, I think it just matches everything. It's just such a great tone. Goes great with grays, looks good with black, looks good with white, looks good with pearl. Um, it is a very versatile sort of color. And, um, you know, I, I really like using it. I also really like using greens, different military greens. But I gotta tell you, green figures do not seem to sell as well as other shades, uh, even more like neutral colors, like uh, black and white and, um, you know, colors like that that aren't particularly expressive or don't have a particular hue, those are always going to be the things that sort of I move the most of. Uh, green, for as much as I love it, and yellow in contrast to green, both those colors do not really activate the audience, it seems, in a, in a broader sense. While we're talking about sort of color theory and things like that, um, it's probably not going to come as a surprise to anybody that Diver, at least in his first wave, is going to be really focused on, I, I guess we would say, nautical themes, right? And that probably shouldn't be terribly shocking for anyone. But uh, there is a really great roster of selections here. You guys haven't seen the guest designer figures. And uh, I got to tell you, the five people that signed up to be guest designers at that very high tier of the campaign, they knocked it out of the park. They came up with really, really fantastic designs. Now, a lot of the process was kind of going back and forth and tweaking designs and sometimes inverting colors and seeing if that worked. But everybody was wonderful to work with. I think everybody's pretty happy with the designs we have locked in. And those are gonna be, four of those are gonna be the sort of, no, sorry, not four of them. Some of those are going to be in the initial four pack that uh, everybody pre-ordered and that will be going out to people. Um, and then we have, I think one or two styles that'll be in the store. And I uh, probably shouldn't mention this, but what the hell, one of the guest designer styles is actually going to be in action figure of the Millennia Club. Um, do not know which month that's gonna be yet, so I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't hold out for that. But uh, everyone did a great job. I'm looking forward to sharing these. Um, I think people are going to be pretty happy with them. Speaking of talking about colors, we got a good question from Quentin Russo here. I'm enjoying the 3.75 Jurassic World toys. Any chance we could get a Raptor color deco for the reptile head? The two-tone brown, uh, sorry, two-tone brown, that's a tough, tough uh, sentence to say, with green eyes would be fire. Um, I think over a long enough timeline, yeah, like I, I want to do a lot of different reptile heads in a lot of different shades and colors. I think brown totally makes sense. Uh, the raptors in Jurassic Park, I believe, are incorrect, however. We've been living alive for all this time. Uh, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, the modern thinking is that raptors, along with a lot of other dinosaurs, actually had feathers. And um, it does not seem like those guys are uh, accurate to what our current recollection of the fossil record is. So, um, until I can add some feathers to that reptile head, or until Steven Spielberg goes back and with CGI retcons every single raptor and T-Rex as well, um, I want nothing to do with that brand. Next up, we got a good, deep, philosophical question from our friend Valverde. 
A past period in human history you wouldn't mind living in if you were set enough financially to sustain your health, to sustain, and your health was not affected by disease, war, etc. As in, you could pick any setting, even though amongst the calamity you did not have to fear death from any factor other than just getting old. Um, that is a really tough question. My knee-jerk reaction to the question is I want to be where I am right now in in the modern day and I want to live the lifespan uh, as intended. Um, you know, I, I got to believe even, even going back, say, a hundred years, the misery index is still pretty damn high, even if you have riches, right? Because... Uh, there was still, getting old was still a miserable process. It's a little bit, uh, just through technology and general advancement, it is, uh, a little more comfortable now, but, um, I, I have a really hard time signing up for, for this time travel experiment. Just think of, like, the process of managing kidney stones. Like, you know, now, uh, we have pharmaceuticals and we have ultrasounds that sort of pulsate and break up kidney stones and it is still I hear an extremely painful process but it is remarkably better managed than it was even 30 or 40 years ago but uh, okay so in the spirit of the question what time period would I pick uh, I'm going proto Indo Euro every time I'm living in a cave I have a small community of a hundred people or so, and uh, we're just chilling. We're grilling every day. We're having a lot of grilled meats. We're practically keto. I guess we are keto. Uh, there's probably some root vegetables going on there, a little bit of starch. Um, and uh, and that's it. And it's beautiful. And there are some uh, late surviving prehistoric creatures there. It's it's fantastic. And uh, I invent art on the cave wall. That was me. I did it. I came up with drawing the uh, Uruk and the uh, bison that we were hunting. Moving along to modern day, Gabriel Tovar, do you think Transformers Pretenders would make a great addition to the current Transformer line, especially in the core class? I got the core class Iguanus, and he's pretty dang dope. There's just a mass appeal to me when it comes to any robot made into smaller scale toys. Um, look. I'm a die-hard Pretender fan for Transformers. I am, I'm like the anti-Transformer fan. My favorite lines are Action Master and Pretenders, the ugly bastard stepchildren of the Transformer franchise. Um, I would love to see Pretenders make a proper comeback. Now, we had the sort of, uh, what was it, Headmaster Titans that had little tiny, uh, you know, like Micronaut size, um, not Micronaut, Diaclone size head pilots. And those were cool, that, that scratched the itch a little bit, but I would love to see a more comprehensive, proper Pretenders with a hard candy shell I'm talking about. Now, I think actually, if you look at Marvel and their um, mech, what is it, mech mashers, mech madness, what the hell is the name of it? Mech strike, sorry, had to look it up. Um, there's a, a basic template for what a Pretenders line could be in the Transformer realm. And I think it is, you know, the problem is like, you you want an outer shell, but you kind of need some articulation. So you probably have the legs and the torso be one solid piece that's hollow. 
snap it together, and then have articulated arms. And I think if you look at the mech strike line, it gives you kind of a good template that they could adapt to and sort of try and utilize. Um, if you will allow me a slight jag here, I feel pretty excited about two different toy lines, and there's going to be a lot of coverage of this on Patreon. Maybe you've already seen some, but... I really like the Mech Strike line, and I am very excited about the subline Monster Hunters. And if you haven't seen these pictures, go look up Mech Strike Monster Hunters. This is, to me, the second coming of Toy Biz in the 90s. We are finally sort of seeing an interesting interpretation of the biggest franchise characters in the world. Now, modern day toy making is really about just accurately recreating what appears on Disney Plus or on the movie screen, there's not a whole lot of inventiveness going on there. This line gets back to just having a batshit crazy idea, Marvel superheroes, biomechanical, fused with monsters, and they're clearly having a lot of fun with it. Um, I'm also going to be covering the Lightyear line, uh, famously, you know, Buzz Lightyear, his, his new CGI movie. Uh, both these lines share something important, which is they're not made for adult collectors. They're made for kids, and I think that's why they're so, they just seem like such a breath of fresh air. Um, they're interesting, they're well articulated, they're not super articulated. They have snap-on armor. Both these lines, I think, share a kinship and have me really, like, going to the store weekly trying to find them. I, I You know, I feel like there's a little piece of creativity back in the toy aisles, which have been really devoid of anything other than just following a style guide, you know, verbatim. So check out those two lines. I'm going to be doing a lot of coverage, like I said, and they just feel like, uh, you know, a nice, a nice couple of toy lines that hit the store just as we're ramping up, getting into warmer weather, maybe starting to think about movies that are going to be out in the summer. You know, that old feeling, that Mission Impossible feeling, that ID4 feeling that I touched on uh, so heavily last year. You know, just that summer movie magic kind of hype, the toy lines that tie into it. Um, dare I say, toys are back, baby. Moving along to Charlie Pope. My wife and I recently played Card Slicers, don't ask who won, and I had a few questions. Most important, if Rex uses his ability to stop a hit at the heart, can Cray use his ability to re-roll? If so, does that mean Rex gets to use his ability again? I ask because the verbiage says, can force a re-roll if he misses. Thank you for your time. Uh, second related question, if you have time, in three versus three games, do you call character and stat to hit or just stat to hit any character? Thank you in advance. This is wonderful. This is why we're sort of beta testing the card slicers card game together because I want to have this dialogue. I want to sort all these things out. I want to know what's unclear about playing it. So thank you so much, Charlie. This is super, super helpful for me. Um, let's start at the beginning. All special abilities are one use only, okay? Uh, special abilities in the next version of card slicers are going away, and we're just going to focus on artifact cards, which are essentially a separate special ability. You can use it once and have a special effect on the gameplay. Now, eventually I would like to get back to re-adding special abilities back in. I think it's important. It gives uniqueness to the cards. But for the next iteration, we're sort of pressing pause on special abilities and focusing on integrating artifact cards, and those will manipulate the play. 
But to answer your specific question, uh, so Cray attacks Rex. Rex uses his ability to stop the hit, uh, and then that is sort of a special ability in action. So Cray could arguably use his ability to re-roll, but then neither of them can utilize their special ability again. So yes, like you, you know, your special abilities can sort of counter each other, and then you essentially just end up back at the start of a turn. No special ability would be throughout the entire game, because that would really break the game. Like, if you just were able to re-roll every single time you missed, uh, doesn't add any challenge to the game whatsoever. Now, in 3v3 games, you, if you're attacking, you call out what character you're attacking, and what hitbox you're attacking, what stat you're attacking. That is super crucial. You gotta do it every time. As you saw when me and Thomas Jonte played online, we sort of forgot to do that a bunch of times. We were we were a mess, no question. But um, yes, you need to be targeting specific characters with your specific character, and you need to be very clear about what stat you're attacking. Now there is also blitz mode, in which you can roll five dice at once the entire game. And in that case, you kind of pick and choose where your hits are going to be applied, but they can only be applied to the single character card you targeted, which you called out prior to rolling. So hopefully that clears up this. Please, guys, give me a million card slicer questions. I love getting into the gameplay mechanics. It makes me think of scenarios I have not encountered myself, so it is super, super useful. Um, I think I've talked about it before, but the next opportunity for card slicers are going to be uh, an 18-card set, which features nine character cards, and it features nine artifact cards. And it's going to have a very nice sort of uh, fold-out packaging with the rules and explanations. And um, I might do a pre-order. I might even do a Kickstarter campaign. Who the hell knows? But that's going to be the next jump-off point for card slicers. The cards you guys have now are going to probably become very valuable because I'm not going to run them again. Uh, in that form. So you guys really have like the prototypes of this adventure. Okay, before I go, before I sign off for today, I wanted to give you guys a heads up on what is the next thing that we're going to tackle. And I, I had an epiphany while I was recording this, and yesterday I went to work, and I stayed up way past my bedtime editing and uh, collating, and I think I finally know what we're gonna do next. We are going old hero style once again, and we are going to revisit Harley and Marley. Now, it's probably a lot of new patrons, a lot of new listeners who don't know what Harley and Marley is, uh, but, Harley and Marley was what I did during middle school and high school instead of paying attention in class. I would doodle on blue line paper uh, this little sequential comic strip about two assassins. And frankly, they weren't very good at their job, that's for sure. Um, this is really like set in the heart of the mid-90s. This is uh, my reaction to sort of like X-Files and Marilyn Manson, Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's all infused into this, frankly, not very good art or good story, but 
what I think are relatively interesting characters. And I never actually sat down and scanned every single page, uh, which I did yesterday. And there is 32 pages for this forthcoming ebook, including the new full color cover and intro that Gavin Mackey did, I think in 2019. So it is a pretty exhaustive collection of all the Harley and Marley stuff. There's even a little bit of like concept art thrown in the margins and stuff like that. Um, this is going to be a lot of fun. I want to anchor this new ebook with figures of Harley and Marley. And I'm going to do that under the optics of Harley and Marley in present day. So their story takes place in 1995. We're going to have figures that represent them as they would be in the world of 2022 in the Knights of the Slice universe. So this is, the figures will be a bit older, a bit aged, but it is the same characters. And I think it's an interesting sort of look back at these guys. I had a lot of fun. I went through and meticulously pulled every single drawing I could find of them sat down and scanned in between playing Elden Ring. Uh, it was probably about four or five hour block of time to, to get everything put in. Uh, and then I went in and I kind of touched up the comics as much as I could. Um, they are in a very rough stage, right? It looks like a photocopy, but that's how the original was. And there's a ton of spelling errors. There's a lot of inconsistencies, but it is largely as I envisioned. I would say it's about... 95% the comics as they appeared on the page. I've done some very, very light tweaking to a couple of things, um, particularly uh, the last couple pages. There was things that just didn't make sense at all, so I had to do a little bit of finessing to kind of give us a, a uh, button to end the series on. But I'm super excited about this. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think you guys are going to dig it. And um, if there are no delays or anything like that, this will probably be our next big launch, and you can, you can look forward to that. Patrons will, of course, get early access to this bundle. I think also, um, I did have a file, a 3D file, of Harley Marley's heads as they appear in the 90s, done by Siva Jack. I think I'm gonna throw that in. So this would be kind of a digital bundle. You'll get the ebook, which is coming in at about 32 pages right now. You're going to get uh, the two figures and you're gonna get a 3D file so you can print the heads out and have versions of them as they appeared in the 90s. So I'm super excited about this. My next task is to sit down and write the sort of foreword to this, explain a little bit about the series. That'll be page two on this book I'm holding in my hand. And uh, I think people are really gonna dig this. this is. This is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's so wacky and so bad, but you got to kind of appreciate that. You know, we've all doodled in our sketchbooks, and uh, this is another series of old heroes that we can check off the list. They are they're going to be officially in the Knights of the Slice world, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, other than that, I hope everyone has a great weekend. Thank you for the great questions. Very briefly... I want to say every single purchase you guys make really uh, makes a difference and it lights up my day. And I love seeing orders come in from people. 
when you sort of order stuff on Amazon or anywhere else, that's a big corporate enterprise. Uh, the people packing those orders are often not the creator, as it is with me, and they could give a shit. They don't care whose names pop up. They don't, you know, it doesn't matter to them. They're punching a clock. But for me, every time I get an order, it's pure joy and elation. Uh, I, I am sick and I like packing up orders. There's something wrong with me, obviously, but it is fun labor for me. And I like imagining you guys getting your packages and opening them and having a little bit of a nicer day because your parcel from Knights of the Slice arrives. So every time you make a purchase, just know it has a reverberation. It has a positive effect on my life for sure. And it gives me work to do. So much appreciated for all the patronage and all the store orders. And the only thing left to say is pizza out. Wait, that's not the only thing left to say. I got to give you our outro song. It's from a brand new uh, group that everybody's talking about. That's right, Zed Star 7. And this is their song, Cigarette Kisses. Enjoy.